and welcome to the Snow Brains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge onto you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a professional mountain guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snow Brains, and I once ran out of options during National Week and had to hitchhike for five hours across the high country of Southwest China. The driver didn't speak a word of English, nor I a word of Chinese, but he was one of the happiest people I'd ever met, and it was truly one of the most spectacular car rides of my life. The Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area, home of the deepest average annual snowfall in the Rocky Mountains. My guest today is Cody Townsend, a California beach kid from Santa Cruz who was the high school quarterback dating the head cheerleader while simultaneously winning the Junior Olympics downhill ski race at 16 years old, who ended up becoming a legendary free skier out of Lake Tahoe, California. He's done Hollywood stunts for Vin Diesel. He skied the most insane line ever in Alaska. He's in approximately one zillion amazing ski movies, and he's now the star and producer of The 50 Project where he's attempting to climb and ski the 50 classic ski descents of North America. Hello, Cody. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. How are you, man? Doing good. Busy time of the year, but uh, otherwise good. Right on. Looks like you're at home in Squaw Valley? Yeah, yeah, home. I actually live in Tahoe City now. Bought a house here about five years ago. And uh, yeah, cranking away. I think I've been home more than I've ever been in my entire life this year. (laughs) I am with you, man. It's been, uh, but there's been some silver linings, which we'll get to. Uh, There's something magical about being home and exploring the backyard. When did you ski last? Just a couple of days ago, I've been kind of skiing quite a bit. I think I've skied squaw one day and just been kind of ski touring out in the backyard. We have just enough snow to have some fun out there. It feels good. So what I'd like to do here today is deconstruct your life in a way that exposes the mindsets and philosophies you've used to succeed in life and take on projects like the 50 and ski lines like the crack, which is the run called the most insane line ever. We're, we're going to jump right into the rapid fire questions. How many days per year do you ski? I have no idea. I don't think I've ever counted. Well, I used to count when I was in like high school and I would ski 60 days a year because it was only the weekends driving up from Santa Cruz. But these days, you know, it's funny. You'd be like, yeah, I probably ski like 180 days a year or something. But also as a pro skier, you actually ski not as much as you think. We, we There's a lot of travel days and a lot of days in between. So I have no idea. <laughs> that is such a non-nerdy answer. I love it. That's so laid back. And Andrew McLean told me he skis about 100 days a year. I was so yeah. surprised, you know, and, and I guess it's all over the board, but uh, that's interesting. So what's your main goal, you know, on a day-to-day basis when you're going skiing? What are you looking for out there? Usually it all centers around just fun, but it can be fun for different reasons, whether that's finding a little challenge, whether that's finding some sort of good turn. And these days, sometimes it's just an exercise so that I have more fun while I'm doing some of the bigger projects. So, it, I mean, it's always centered around fun, but it could be just different little things every day. I think that's the beauty of skiing is I can find something new to entertain myself every time I go out. And speaking of the bigger projects, what do you think is your biggest accomplishment in skiing? It's probably just being a pro skier, just being here today and lucky to get paid to be a skier. I mean, that was my dream since I was like six years old. So the fact that I'm 37 and I'm a skier for a living, like that's, I think, by far my biggest accomplishment. And there might be some congruency here, but what do you think is your biggest accomplishment in life? It's probably that same thing. I mean, you could point to a lot of things and there's a lot of things in life, but I think it's mainly I'm happy. I'm like 
pretty happy with everything that has gone on in my life. And it's, I'm, you know, just stoked. And that's something that I think we all try to strive for is being happy. And I feel like I am. So it feels like it's a big accomplishment. And don't take it for granted because I know I can at times, but it's one of the biggest challenges in life is to be happy. And yeah. how do you, how do you define yourself? A few different ways. I think first is curious, get obsessed with things and then dive right in just purely out of curiosity's sake. And I think that drives into the mountains for me. I'm just, I know there's so much to explore and so much to see and so much to learn out there that I, I don't know. I feel like I'm just like a kind of curious person. I always am striving to know more and to learn more and to kind of understand more things in, in, in our world. What's your favorite place to ski? Well, it's like not a place, but I would say it's the 4,000 mile region along the West Coast of North America. So pretty much starting from here in Tahoe in the Sierra all the way up to Alaska. That is like where I feel most comfortable. That is my mountains. Um, I love traveling north to south among them. It's hard to say, but you know, like Alaska is amazing. BC is amazing. I love Washington. I love skiing in California. I think it's just that the West Coast of North America, I haven't found any other place like it. So to kind of help define it for our users, you did that really well there with the state and provinces of Canada, but it sounds like it's the Sierra Nevada, the Cascade Mountains in the Pacific Northwest, and then the coast range of British Columbia. And yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. My weakness is Washington. Maybe I'll get some tips from you here later. Um, yeah, Washington's a secret. It's like, it's, it's hard to figure insanely out. Insanely good. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to figure out. Yeah. Now it's uh, Washington is like, uh, yeah, it's the, the secret place that nobody knows about that is absolutely some of the best skiing in the world. Well, good. Well, let's dive back into that later. What would you do if you could not ski? Go crazy because that's the only thing I've ever thought about being. <laughs> but uh, I mean, if it came to like functional profession, I've always said I would probably be like a firefighter or something like that. Um, the, that was always my plan B was like, oh, be a firefighter. That sounds like fun. I like, like the challenge and I guess the adrenaline and the figuring it out. So, and you had a lot of time off to play. So, perfect. What, what scares you the most in the mountains? Probably myself. You know, the mountains are in, in uh, an inherently dangerous place and we know they're dangers and we kind of, you know, they can be unpredictable, but I think it's mainly, it's how you act within them that defines whether you're going to be caught in trouble. So I'm trying to limit your ego to make good decision-making, to evaluate yourself in the process and to make the correct decisions to move safely through mountains, I think is truly what scares me the most because those are that's the factor that is what's going to cause harm is myself. And so knowing that is the most important to it. Um, the mountains are fixed objects and yeah, they can have avalanches and hazards, but it's mainly, uh, it's all reliant on my own decisions to, to get through them. So yeah, it's probably me. It's true. And the mountains don't care if you're there or not. What do you love most about the mountains and being in the mountains? That's something that can't be answered concisely. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> It's uh, it's everything, man. And I think it's the fact that every time you poke over the a, a new ridge line, you look back and it's just a magical and it feels like more to explore. I feel like there's an unlimited lifetime of lessons that you can learn out there. I feel like there's a, a spirituality to connecting with the natural world. I feel like there's something obviously personally challenging with the mountains. And I just... <laughs> I, yeah, it's really hard to define because in certain parts of my life, the mountains meant one thing to me and, and now parts of my life, they mean another thing. So I think that's, it's kind of place where I find myself. Um, quite often I say the mirror, the mountains are a mirror and, uh, I think they, that really is what they are to me. What's the funniest accident you've had in the mountains? Hmm. 
I shit my pants in a helicopter once. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's uh, um, <laughs> Is there a story there? <laughs> I just like trying to press a fart out way too hard and maybe had a little something bad to eat the night before. So, and I remember <laughs> we were forced to land the helicopter because the pilot got so pissed off and I had to go clean myself up before getting back in the helicopter. So maybe that. So you affected other people's nasal experience within the helicopter. Yeah, it's a small confined base. You don't want to be sitting next to someone to shit their pants. So yeah, that was probably, uh, and it wasn't because I was scared or anything. It was literally just like trying to push a fart out and it came out a little softer, more of a shark. Oh, that's great. Was it a scary day though? Or was it a mellow day? Yeah, no, it was mellow day. I don't even think we, I think we were like, just didn't even get to do anything. I was probably trying to make people laugh. Oh, you're gonna make me choke. Should have not drank water right then. Um, so what's the scariest accident you've had in the mountains? couple um an accident witnessing a fall on joffrey peak last year um my wife being caught in an avalanche i wasn't there um i was up in whistler and she was in stevens pass oh yes wasn't necessarily me being there but that was definitely one of the scariest moments yeah i would say those two i mean the one i witnessed that was kind of one of the kind of freakiest moments of watching someone nearly die before in front of your eyes but i would probably say nearly losing my wife in an avalanche was the scariest. Absolutely. That's terrifying. And that was such big news with the New York Times article and more. And there was so much to learn from that. So uh, how many friends have you lost in the mountains? Over 20, I would say. And not necessarily all from the mountains. Um, you know, some uh, like Shane um, and like Timmy and stuff were skydiving accidents, but all skier friends. So uh, I've, I remember I've tried to count, but it's like too kind of tragic to think about. So yeah, over, I know it's over 20, which is horrible. It is. And, and by Shane, he means Shane McConkie and Tim, yeah. Timmy Dutton, uh, both fantastic skiers from Squaw Valley. Uh, how many avalanches have you been in? One, one time in my life, I was caught in one, you know, ski cut plenty of them, had semi-close calls, but they were all generally predictable. But uh, I was only caught in one and it was a pretty small one. I got flushed, wasn't even remotely buried. It was pretty minor. Good. Well, we'll come back to that. Have you ever been hurt while skiing? Yeah. <laughs> I just watched that video of you hitting that rock in Alaska when you jump like maybe 50 plus feet. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. What, what, what might your injuries have been? Uh, I blew my ACL, MCL, tibia plateau fracture, and tore my meniscus on that one. Tore my PCL, broken my femur, broken my ankle, I've broken both wrists, uh, dislocated shoulders, not dislocated shoulders, but separated shoulders, seven or eight concussions. Yeah, lots. Whoa, the femur. Okay, I might have to come back to the femur. Uh, yeah. you, you've been on ski trips all over the world. Which was your favorite ski expedition? I mean, they all have something amazing about them. I, it's really tough to sum it up into one, but I would say the one that changed my life for the most part was an expedition to Svalbard in 2015, um, going up to the Arctic Circle in winter for my first ever winter camping trip, first kind of human-powered climbing trip that I ever did. And that was the one that like hooked me to this uh, entirely new style of skiing and kind of expedition skiing in general. May that have been the seed that grew into something along the lines of the 50 project? Totally was. It was totally like it was kind of a bridge that started to get me into that kind of world. And uh, it was I used it as a test to see if I kind of if I loved that kind of style of skiing and I fell in love. 
Wow. Okay, great. We'll come back to that as well. So I've been skiing in Svalbard uh, a handful of times now, and I've never left the coast though. And that's the the really great skiing is inland. So I'm jealous of that. Yeah. Uh, where would you not go back to? Hmm. That's a tough one. Where would you not go back to? It's a to? mean one almost, right? <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to say this, but it's like, uh, but I would go back there because the mountains are amazing. But Russia, Russia kind of sucks. Um, like there's a lot of things about Russia that sucks. <laughs> what, what but was the mountains are insane. Like the yeah. Caucasus mountains are so <laughs> sick. So I kind of would go back. Um, <laughs> God, I don't think there's anywhere I wouldn't go back to. I really, every trip has had something to it. And sure, certain trips have bad sides to it and downsides to it. But I can't say there's anywhere that'd be like, yeah not back there anymore and what about russia pulled that reaction from you this is going to sound really bad but russians are assholes <laughs> <laughs> i haven't I, been i've never been maybe americans are assholes and so they don't like us but uh, it could be very true uh but yeah i mean just getting ripped off getting yelled at couldn't do anything people like uh we almost got killed by vladimir putin like Whoa, truly that we need to hear yeah, we got ran off the road while we were driving down this like two lane highway and all of a sudden a cavalcade of like limos and army cars come racing around the corner in the middle of the road going like 70 <laughs> miles an hour. And we had to like slam off into the this like cliff wall and the other side was like 400 feet of cliffs and we we're just like, what the, like nearly got ran off the road and killed by, by Putin himself. It was his uh, motorcade. Yeah, he was coming into the Caucasus to his dacha. To, um, that was his like vacation home, and Whoa. they actually shut down our contest because he showed up because there was no, uh, we couldn't have a helicopter in the area because so uh, no no, and there was no hospital in the area, so we couldn't have any sort of rescue. And it was just like, come on, dude, just because you're in town, damn it. <laughs> Whoa! All right, yeah. well, go Vlad, man. What a wild man! Yeah. No, it's, it, yeah, it must, it must all man. be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I don't know. He's probably listening to me right now. So <laughs> yeah, be careful, dude. Uh, we'll put we'll we'll leave your email at the end of this podcast. Uh, okay, cool. Specifically for Vlad. Uh, so you're very much into human powered skiing now. Uh, a lot of people are. This is growing hugely. But does anything truly compare to Alaska heli skiing? No. But that's because like, I don't think any sort of skiing really compares to anything. Like I truly try and say in my life that not, there is no form of skiing that is better than another form. Currently in my life right now, I'm super into this human powered stuff. Do what I say like, oh, it's a better form of skiing than like using mechanized access. So you're like, well, I mean, for 10 years, I hated ski touring and I hated human power adventures and <laughs> heli skiing was the most amazing thing in the world. So it's like, well, it was just more of a reflection of myself in that moment. So I don't think any form is better, but like, so nothing truly compares to heli skiing. But like right now, if I had to choose between heli skiing in Alaska or climbing a spine line in Alaska, I'd rather climb it. But that's just me now. And why would you rather climb it now? I just like the the challenge of it. I like the puzzle piece, the the mental aspects of it, the planning, the preparation, the more time you spend on the mountain. There's just something in the moment right now that I enjoy. I enjoy the up and the preparation as much as I enjoy the down where, you know, back in the day, I just enjoyed the down. And so I don't know. It just feels like where I find myself most challenged and most enjoying myself right now. How many ski movies have you been in and which was your favorite? Uh, 20, 30 ski movies. I have no idea. I've never definitely counted. Um, and, but like, if you're asking which my favorite I was in, 
I would have to say the the way I see it from Matchstick in 2010, that was just a it was a high quality movie with a lot of entertainment and it was really funny. But favorite ski movie ever is Matchstick Sixth Sense. And I think it was just because I was 15 and I picked that was like the first time being introduced to a non-Warren Miller ski film. And I my mind was blown and I watched it two to three times a day for an entire summer. Like I kid you not, two to three times a day at Whoa. minimum. So uh, you yeah, think that, that helps, changed my life. Do you think that helps your skiing? hundred percent. I mean, they talk about like how much visualization and watching it. I mean, I think I just like absorbed every turn. I can still picture like uh, so many of the shots. I don't know. There's just, yeah, I think it helps you. (laughs) I agree. And I remember that Seth Morrison many years ago said, who was one of my idols said, uh, if you can't ski with people who are better than you, then watch a lot of ski movies. And, and just that reading, I was like, oh, well, I'm already watching a lot of ski movies. I must be doing something right. I'll turn that up. And uh, just since we're talking about it, my favorite ski movie is 1999. Uh, yes. Scott Gaffney's movie, mostly because it's all a bunch of squaw stuff and I'm figuring out how, where to go. And I just thought I'd yeah. throw that in there because uh, that, that's you added that. That should be a question I ask. Uh, this that was is my a, first ski movie I was in. Yeah, I was going to say, and you're in that. How old yeah. are you in that? How old I don't are you get- in that? I don't get name credit for it. I was 16 years old and I'm just one of the guys. As you the should. Fingers. Are was, you? Uh, yeah. And I was just in those finger shots and I was like, yes, I'm in a ski movie. I hucked the fingers. So I like stopped above it, totally chickened out and then sent main air. But yeah, that was my first ski movie I was in. That would be the coolest thing ever for most anybody. And you did yeah. that at what age? You said you were 15? Uh, six, 15 or 16. I forget. Oh my yeah, gosh. Some, I think it was, I think it was 16. Wow. Will you still ski the fingers? Is that something you would do? Or are you holding back a bit from that stuff to not get hurt for your project, the 50? No, I would totally still ski the fingers. I'm just never at home anymore to ski it on a powder day. So, but I definitely am a little more soft. I'm not, it's got to be pretty primo conditions. And then the other thing is you got to show up early and I'm not driven to show up that early to get first tracks, but no, I still, I I think last year did a couple, a couple of shoots. I haven't sent main in a couple of years, but I definitely have, even though I'm a ski mountaineer, I got to do a backflip every year. So I'm making sure to do that. I'm still trying to jump cliffs because I don't want to turn into a full old man. Man. I, I was definitely going to ask you, do you still throw backflips? And oh, of course. Yeah, okay. Good. I got to, it's like, I want to do it until I'm at least like 50, 60 years old. I got to do a backflip every year. So absolutely. I, I hang out with some of the guys from Alta, Utah now. And whenever I show them clips of us skiing at Squaw or when the Squaw guys come to Utah, they're like, you know, for these fucking Squaw guys, if they don't throw a backflip each day, it's like they didn't even go skiing. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much the way we feel i agree so i got an important question here let's ch- we'll change to a more somber tone why do you have long hair because it's probably all falling out and i'm going to lose it anyway so i might as well cherish it while it's still there <laughs> i agree man you, i'm showing you my head right now i very much don't have hair now i'm, and, uh, I'm starting to get the, the the solar panel up there so i don't know I, I don't, it always felt natural to me for some reason probably because i'm a california ski bum Yes, I had really long hair three times, like nipple length and cut it off three times and now completely moved away. What challenges you most intellectually on a daily basis? Oh man, on a daily basis? I don't know. Um, I think I like to read a lot. I I mean, I read magazines, articles, read books. So I think that's my thing that I do. Right now, I'm actually super into chess because I watched that Queen's Gambit uh, show. I watched it too. So I'm into like these puzzle piece games on chess where you play like four moves and like, oh my God, it's so hard and so awesome. It's finding it very intellectually stimulating. It was like, oh yeah, chess is an amazing game. 
Well, we'll have to bug you about a game of chess moving forward. Uh, and you uh, mentioned books, and that's my next question. What is your favorite book? Favorite's tough, but probably, you know, like Endurance, the Shackleton story, but uh, the author, I forget his name, but that book is just absolutely amazing. But then there's other books that are like lighthearted and fun that I loved when I was a little younger, like A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson. I got to look at my bookshelf over there right now. I just read Wade Davis's Into the Silence. That was really fascinating. It was about ah. the first attempts to climb Everest and kind of the origins of Himalayan mountaineering and British culture and World War One. One of the most important books I've ever read is Cadillac Desert. I love that book because as a West Coast guy growing up in California, it gave me so much more knowledge to how the West was settled. And it's essentially all about water rights and it's really, really fascinating. So, um, but yeah, I read a lot. I like a lot of books. It's a great list. I love uh, Wade Davis's Serpent in the Rainbow is great. And then yeah. his, uh, his Wayfinder book is good. It's mostly good. The beginning is amazing. How the Hawaiians were able to navigate. And Hawaiians actually knew longitude well before Europeans did. And through a variety of tactics, like feeling water currents, knowing what kind of birds were, how far from land and more. And that just blew Europeans' minds when they got there. Like, well, these guys are way more technologically advanced than we are with navigation. Yeah, yeah. I know we white Europeans like to think we invented all the intelligent stuff. And then you like to, you're like, oh, we know the Mayans had calendars way, way before we did. And they were very good with them. So Absolutely. yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that when you're like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. So a natural knowledge, man, there's a lot out there. There is a ton out there. Um, yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. The minds are fascinating. So let's jump into some of the in more in-depth questions. And we have to start with the 50. Sorry, man. I know that you've yeah. talked about this. I can see in your eyes, you're still stoked on this, man. You're, you're in the, the heat of it right now. You're in the middle of the storm still. So explain for our viewers, what is the 50 Project? Uh, when did you start it? And why does it matter? First, I don't think it matters. Um, second, <laughs> the 50 Project. So it is It is my goal that I started in 2019. started dreaming about about three years before that, though. Uh, my goal to try and climb and ski all the 50 classics from the book of the same name, the 50 classic ski descents of North America. Yeah, it's pretty much as simple as that. It's, I think, one of the most challenging things I've ever set out to do. Actually, it is the most challenging thing at this point in my life. And uh, it's pretty much taken every ounce of focus and energy I've, I've ever had and all the lessons I've learned is over my 30 years of being a skier to kind of put into it. It might be one of the most challenging things any skier or a rider has taken on. How many of the 50 have you done now? I ticked off 30. So No way. I thought, I thought it was less than that. Yeah. So, oh. well, I, I, I did three in secret and we have a movie coming out on Ooh. Monday. So oh. that's well, going to be documenting that. So nice. or that shows it. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm at 30. Can you, this will come out after that. So are you, are you able to share which ones those were? Yeah. So we did, and I can kind of share the synopsis of it. Please. Ticked off Hood, Rainier, and El Dorado Peak, uh, so the Pacific Northwest, kind of the volcanoes. Well, uh, El Dorado is not a volcano, but it's up in the North Cascades of Washington. And kind of after the coronavirus restrictions were starting to lift, the travel bans were starting to lift, Michelle Parker and I jumped on our bikes with all our ski gear on the back of them and pedaled from here in Tahoe all the way to all three of them, um, took Whoa. off and, and rode our bikes to all the mountains to go skiing. So uh, we're kind of camping off the grid the entire time, living in tents and just trying to climb in ski peaks in a kind of new way with a definitely a big, big challenge. That is phenomenal. And you know, our friends from Squaw, Stein and Eric, were did something similar, uh, but at different yep. goals. Did you see those guys out there? 
We didn't see them. Okay. We had left like a week before them, I think. Okay. But yeah, we were keeping tabs and I think we messaged it a little bit. So um, yeah, they were doing the same thing. That was a good idea. I mean, you can kind of travel off the grid. You travel slowly for the mm-hmm. crew. Like with the, the restrictions, we found it as a way where we're like, well, let's say we were to get infected, like at a gas station, if we got something, um, it takes like five days just to get to the next town. We're probably <laughs> going to start showing symptoms by then and know that we shouldn't go into the next town. So it was, and we were, like I said, we were pretty much off the grid the entire time. Bjarne, Michelle and I, and we really didn't see anyone the entire time. We were just kind of on our own in our own little, almost like moving quarantine. Congratulations. That's really cool. That's something I will probably never do. And I think that's so cool. And, and people take on those volcano projects, but I think the way that you did it is, is very interesting. So I'll like, we'll all be excited to see that. How long are you giving yourself to finish this project, the 50 project? Well, so I originally said three years and that was more kind of a I'm going to commit myself to three years of this. And it was also an excuse to get out of any other projects or commitments that people would ask for me because I'm like, (laughs) I'm kind of busy. I got this project and I said three years. It was also a personal challenge. I knew that like I could do it and I wanted to do it fast and I wanted to be focused and I wanted to just see how hard I could go at this. So I really wanted to be like, can you do it in three years? I knew the chances of that were almost slim to none. I thought it was possible, but I was like, I'm going to, I'm just going to say it. And, you know, who knows too, like after three years, I might be completely burnt out on this and completely over and just be like, cool, I committed three years. I got 45, I'm done. So that's what I originally said. But the ultimate reality to it is it could take a lifetime and it could take another 10 years. There are lines in the project that have been skied once in 20 years. So who knows if it's going to come back into condition when I go up there. So it could could take a long time. And again, I might get to a point where I'm just like, no, I'm good with 48 and I'm going to let the, let the next person do it and try and finish it. But I feel, I feel good in that decision. Well, fortune favors the bold. You're obviously going to do a huge chunk of it in three years. And that's just going to be so exciting. And obviously if you don't finish it, you will be the one who paved the way. How many lines of the 50 project do you hope to get done this year with all the coronavirus restrictions and the border closures? Uh, it's going to be more complicated than ever. Well, so I have 20 left. And, you know, last year we were pretty much on our way up to BC when all of a sudden the whole lockdown happened. And we had such an insane weather pattern that was just perfect for all the lines <laughs> I had scouted out. Um, so I thought last year, like we ended on 27 and, and the lockdown, and I thought we were going to easily get another seven seven to 10 more. Um, we were just, we were just getting into the prime time ever season. I mean, mid March into mm-hmm. May is like the perfect time for it. So yeah, I was like, man, we could be ending this thing at, at you know, uh, 35 and, or almost, you know, 40 if we really wanted to. So, uh, this year, I don't know, we'll see. I'm probably aim for another 10, at least hopefully 12. Um, it's gonna, it's getting more concentrated. That's for sure. Cause I got the spring, the prime time cut out last year. So all the early season ones are kind of done at this point. And now I'm going to be trying to bounce all over the place. Like, you know, some of the lines in California are in at the same times as the one up in Northern BC. So how do I manage the time to jump back and forth between those? And yeah, I think, um, with the challenges I'll be doing the same sort of thing. Bjarne and I are going to be living out of our rigs, camping at trailheads, trying to stay out of towns. And, you know, getting across the border is going to be interesting, but there are some ways. So if we have to quarantine for two weeks to do that before we go out, I'll do it. Um, I'm pretty committed to, to this project. Absolutely. How good is 40 going to feel? 
Ah, uh, pretty good. But like, you know, like I hit halfway and that felt really good. But I also now I'm at 30. I'm like, cool, I only have 20 left. But you know, it's like the net 13 of them are going to be pretty doable. Three of them are going to be really, really hard. And I think those last three are going to be looming over me for a long, long time. So even gonna, though like, even though it feels like you're like, oh, cool, you're you're at 47. I'll still know. You're like, yeah, I got the three hardest and that could take a decade to do. So I don't know. It's it's in number. It feels like you're getting close. But in reality, it doesn't feel like I'm actually that close. Because of those looming, you know, scary yeah. peaks that are out there. And I'd love to hear what your three are. I'm guessing Mount Robson in Canada, University yeah. Peak in Alaska. And what might be the third if, if I guess those first two right? Uh, Mount St. Elias. Oh gosh. Yeah. I forgot that's on the list. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. For our viewers, it's in Icy Bay, Alaska, which is kind of where the panhandle touches the mainland of Alaska. It's right on the beach. So there's this bay and it basically goes from the ocean. And the, the way to do it in style, I believe, is you start at the coast and it's yeah. 18,000 vertical feet to the summit of this thing. And you can ski all 18,000 feet to the beach in Alaska longest ski run in the world there's nothing else that you can ski that much uh, that much vert and it's also renowned for having just about the worst weather in the world it makes denali look tame and times you must know mark and janelle smiley i did uh did an episode with them last year the middle teton right. kind of because they tried to do the 50 classic climbs of north america and mount st elias was on there and they had done it and um, i wanted to kind of interview them and talk with them and yeah i've done a, a few things with them so those mm -hmm. guys are awesome what did they tell you about St. Elias? You know, they had the most perfect trip. They had like seven days of perfect, absolute bluebird weather. And they were like, yeah, it was pretty straightforward. Um, <laughs> the same time I've heard from some other friends that have been up there that it can be an absolute nightmare. Like get caught in a storm for 21 days, running out of food, living, your tents are shredded from winds. They're buried in 10 feet of snow. You're living out of a snow cave and you only have a five pound bag of rice to hold you over for two weeks. So yeah, I think if the weather cooperates, it's decently straightforward. There are some technical aspects to it, but if the weather doesn't cooperate, you're you're truly you might as well be on the moon because you ain't getting out of there um, without some help or um, a break in the weather. The Smileys told me their story briefly, and it it blew my mind. There's some friends of mine, and I also my first guiding gig was in Alaska with a in McCarthy, Alaska, in in the Saint Elias Wrangell Saint Elias Park. And that guide group in, I think the eighties tried to climb it with clients and they just got stuck. They got stuck, you know, at 10,000 feet and they have pictures and they were using a man sized tunnel to get in and out of their tent. And they were showing that none of the snow was here when we got here, this was just flat ground. And now yeah. we're going through a tunnel and they were, I think they were stuck in a storm for, I think it was 17 days and then they went home. So anyway, yeah. St. Elias, no. University Peak, and Mount Robson in Canada being the big three that will uh, be the biggest challenges. Yeah, well, the Mira face has only been skied once. And, and then, which, which mountain's that on? That's on St. Elias. And that's the actual line. That's the classic line. The university supposedly has been skied only twice from the top. Um, and there are those some rumors of some other secret underground heroes because there is a lot of, along that. And then, uh, yeah, Robson so far twice, 1995 and 2017. So who knows when that comes in? And, you know, these, like, fuck, if I have to wait 20 years, I might have to wait 20 years. 95 and 2017, a little space between those two descents. So what's the biggest intellectual challenge for you and your team in the 50 Project? Probably staying alive the whole time. 
objective-based skiing brings you a certain level of hazard because you have a, a certain goal in mind. And one of the things we always talk about in the mountains is like, let the mountains dictate what you ski. And with objective-based skiing, you, you're going to a certain predetermined location. And so at that point, then you have to be patient. You have to wait for the right weather conditions, the right avalanche conditions. Um, and then the internal influence of wanting to check things off a list and to get things done quickly, that thing can add up as well to making the wrong decision. So intellectually, that's the thing I think challenges me the most because I have to be incredibly aware of my own desires, egos, my uh, what has happened the week before that is giving me confidence or less confidence. I have to know like what mind space I am from a very objective way to make the best decisions to come home at the end of the day. So that is by far the biggest challenge of it. It's also what I enjoy the most. Which I'm guessing is a big reason why you're doing this project, why you've made this shift in your life. Because I think that intellectual aspect of, of ski mountaineering and the planning and, and all the little pieces that you just mentioned are, it's just, it's fascinating. It's just, it keeps you up at night. It's exciting. It's fun. It's, it pumps you up and, uh, and, and in a totally. way that just regular skiing doesn't. And the objective-based skiing, yes, that there is a real challenge. There. One of the things I love about ski guiding is I don't give my clients objectives usually. <laughs> so they just, yeah. we have fun no matter where we go. But totally. uh, yeah, but you guys have that big challenge there. And so you just gave a talk at Alpenglow Sports in Tahoe City. You speak there about your best three lines, I think is what you say for the 50 project. And could mm -hmm. you talk us through a little bit about that? What were the best three lines? The talk was actually a little bit more along the lines of the best three stories. And I still, it's hard to say the best three lines because there's certain ones that were fun for different reasons or certain ones that were like uh, interesting and uh, challenging and they all have their own individual aspects. But the three kind of stories I highlighted, the things that I think have defined it and defined my life was in the Mesner Kular on Denali in 2017. That was what I I kind of frame as the test piece. So I'd started dreaming about the 50 project in 2016. And I got, I invited myself onto a trip with Macintosh. Um, <laughs> I Ian like Macintosh. That terminology. Yeah, well, I did. I heard they were going, Johnny Collinson and Ian Macintosh were going to Denali. And so I just was like, hey, can I come? They're like, yeah, <laughs> sure. And um, I went and skied the Mesner Kular and that was my first kind of that style of trip. My first time at altitude, a first expedition that wasn't a base camping expedition. It's my little test because I was like, if I can do this, then maybe I could commit to the 50. And if I enjoy this, then it's something I want to do. And I enjoyed the hell out of it. So I was, I called Denali was the test piece. And it was what kind of like pushed me to, to do the 50 project. The second line I talk about is the Grand Teton. And I called it like the masterclass. Um, I was lucky enough to go up to that mountain with Jimmy Chin, who, you know, most people know him for winning Oscar and making movies, but he's also one of the most badass alpinists and ski mountaineers of all time. Definitely. And I, I learned a lot of lessons that day. And I learned uh, a ton about technical climbing, decision-making, and I could kind of feel this presence of all the mentors before him, like Conrad Anker and Mug Stump and all these guys and you're just like whoa this is i'm absorbing this knowledge from generations of alpinists through jimmy on this one line um and then the last line i talk about is meteorite uh, climbing scheme that with jeremy jones and similar thing like jeremy's been a, a hero and mentor to me i think for my entire life and it was the first time i think i've ever shared an objective 
with him at the exact same time. And he had a long time goal of doing that. Um, and then I did obviously for the 50 project and just getting to kind of share that day and learn all these lessons I've learned from him over my past 10 years of getting to ride and ski around the world with him. And then to kind of go to a place with the same objective and climb such an insanely amazing line and ski that was like, it was truly cool. It was my first time riding it. So it felt fun to climb it. That's amazing. I was lucky enough to heli ski meteorite peak and I got to ski some of the spine. Uh, the guide let me ski some of the spine. It just literally blew my mind. Uh, I read your report yeah. as beta. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. I, uh, I, I kind of, I, you know, made a, I wrote kind of a poetic report about that kind of like a challenging piece. Could you ski this? And, and would you Skiing that is so incredible. I can't imagine walking there for our audience. Um, I, I don't know the numbers, but maybe you can just let me know. It's like 20 miles to get in there, right? Something like that. Actually, no, it was like six, six miles to the oh, base actually, okay. but mainly it's just a bushwhack. You have to like, right. I mean, it took two days just to figure out how to get to the base of it. We were oh, um, macheteing our way through the Alaskan jungle. We have to cross a river barefoot six times. <laughs> he's rubbing his um, face right now as if he's yeah. going through that experience again. <laughs> oh, that was so cold, man. God, <laughs> walking through a glaciated river with bare oh, feet man. at two in the morning. And then, so six miles and then six and a half thousand vertical feet to the top. Wow. And it was six and a half thousand feet of boot packing. So big, big boot Whoa. pack. And we actually uh, climbed the spine that you rode down. The people I call the dragon's back. That's spine. so cool. So we climbed the spine and yeah, it was an amazing climb and it was just absolutely beautiful. And 17 hour day, um, 12 hours to get from the car to the summit. So it was a big, big day. Huge day. And then, and then you mentioned Denali and the Mesner Corps. So I, I was lucky enough to get to guide to the summit of Denali with clients. Blew my mind. The whole experience is, as you know, is mind bending. You, nobody yeah. has seen terrain like that. It's just, it's phenomenal. Everything's so buried in ice. And I did it in regular ass boots and snowshoes. Yep. And I saw the guys like you up there skiing around and oh my God, just pulling my hair out. It was uh, and there was a couple of days that were just gorgeous, just guys skiing the fixed lines and the rescue shoots. And you know, I think somebody did ski the Mesner like you guys. And I just watched your video of you skiing the Mesner an hour ago. And again, it pissed me off. Uh, yeah. It was oh, got really good conditions, man. I feel so bad for pretty much all the guides up there that like can't be off a rope and have to be oh. on boots. And they're just like to kill me. And I'm like, yeah. cool, we're going skiing. Um, and yeah, like the Mesner man, I, I call it like, imagine your best powder run at your local ski area. So like, imagine like shoot 75 uh, or the West face on a perfect buff powder day with no moguls. And that's, oh. you know, 1500 vert. It's amazing. It was 5,500 vert of that. It was Ooh. like, just like super deterrence for as long as you can go until well, you had to catch your breath. So that run was, I was a top 10 run of my life for sure. Jealous man. And then the Grand Teton, the third one you mentioned here, uh, it's very technical, um, you know, exposed skiing, not the kind of skiing that I generally do. Um, I, I don't know if I'll ever ski that. So big kudos to you. And you get to ski it with, you know, to, with the smileys and with, with Jimmy Chin, you know, that's just amazing. And this is a really great overflow into my next questions, which might have some real overlap here is what's the scariest line you've done so far? And what's the hardest, most grueling line you've done so far? So we'll, we'll start with the scariest line. The scariest and the most scared I was, was uh, climbing the Sphinx and pontoon when we went up there for the first time. And it was really and those hard. Are, back into, those are in, the in Alaska. Alaska. For our yeah, in the Chugach range, uh, out of Points North kind of zone is where we were at. So we flew helicopters to the base and then went to climb them. And it was like completely hard pack. And I'd spent Ooh. a 
decade in Alaska and know Alaska really well, know how to ski it. But I will say I've never skied Alaska steeps in the 50 to 60 degree range when it's absolutely bulletproof. And when all of a sudden you're climbing up it and watching what feels like a tidal wave coming over you because it's so steep Oof. and you're just going up. And I remember just being absolutely puckered. Um, <laughs> you know, it was like, yeah, I really definitely freaked myself out. And then we turned around on both of them, um, mainly just because the skiing was so horrible and went back and did pontoon. And that was amazing. Still scary as hell because it's really steep and really exposed. Um, but those two, I mean, it's Alaska. It's the steepest, most challenging place. And then all of a sudden you throw climbing into it and it definitely ups the ante. It's a big change from skiing a steep line to climbing up it because skiing feels, I don't know, somehow you feel almost like you have yeah. no control. You're working with gravity. When you're climbing, you know, once in a while you look down between your heels, essentially, and there's a lot of air. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you're not setting protection. You don't have ropes on that kind of stuff because it's almost useless and it's really slow. Um, and yeah, you feel like you're just a fly hanging on a wall and it's like you you are very exposed. And I think it's just the time spent on there. When you're skiing, you can just kind of flash through it pretty quickly. It feels easy. But yeah, the climbing thing, I'm, I think I'm finally kind of getting over that those sensations and knowing that, yeah, you're locked up, you're secure. But some of my first times with this, it definitely is freaky. There's an intellectual challenge as well. Uh, yeah. What was the hardest, most grueling line? Hardest, most grueling? <laughs> that was probably G Giant Steps, um, which is on Mount Williamson. So that one- In California. Like, yeah, in California, in the Sierra. Uh, second highest peak in California, um, over 14. And I think you start at like uh, just under 6,000 uh, feet. And so it's just a massive, massive day. You go up to a really high altitude, essentially. And I remember feeling like it was going to vomit on top. Also, the Watson Traverse up on Mount Baker, up in the Pacific Northwest, um, that one was grueling because it just sucks. It was like, <laughs> it's just a slog, huh? It was 12,000 vert of hiking and maybe 2,000 vert of skiing. It was Oof. so stupid. It was one of the ones I was like, this sucks. This should not be a classic. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> I did not like that one. We're going to have to make an amendment to the book there. Yeah, so that one was, I think it was grueling just because I was bored the whole time. <laughs> oh, God. You know, I used to uh, guide on Mount Rainier. I'll, I, I can relate to you on the boring Pacific Northwest slog. Yeah. Which, which one was the most fun for you? Hmm. I mean, I would say Mount Moran this last year was ah. all time. And that's in um, Wyoming, uh, just outside of Jackson Hole. Yeah, and the, the Tetons. And six and a half thousand vert face of just sustained steep skiing and we hit it in just perfect conditions mm. stable and pow top to bottom i mean oh. ripping like 60 mile an hour gs turns or super g turns down it and just like hooting and hollering it was so fun you know that was <laughs> that was definitely a highlight there's um i mean we got superior on the very first line of the I project just, i did i just watched that in like knee deep pal with not a single person else up there that was pretty incredible too so um that was the best time i'd ever skied superior that is very cool yeah i skied superior i think four times last year i got in a little avalanche i don't know if you saw that that was pretty terrifying um, no i don't think all, i did you know i just watched your video you know where you drop in um yep. and then and then i forget who the second skier is he skis just skiers right of you when i got in a little avalanche on that little wind spine there and i started going down that chute where i think you guys exited that first apron and I luckily got out of it, but I mean, imagine getting in an avalanche in that spot. What's going through your mind is this is 
you know, maybe life ending. Anyway, uh, but I watched your video and I love that you used the word Japan in Utah uh, on Mount Superior because the snow really was that good and that deep the day that you guys skied it. Yeah, no, it was incredible. And the pep almost got taken out by us off right there. Yeah, that was like the one oh, really? place you kind of don't want to get. Yeah, it was close, but uh, he, he managed to get it out of it. So yeah, that is a, a place you don't want to get slid in. I agree. And that's what I did. But luckily, I'm still here. And uh, I really tried to use that as an example. And you, you know, the, the Utah Avalanche Center used it in their, uh, their workshop and everything this year, because uh, it was very well documented with my 360 GoPro and uh, and it's you can hear me talking and it's kind of terrifying. On the terrifying subject in the mountains, my next question is: uh, Have you had any close calls on the project so far? Not personally. Um, I think the closest call was witnessing the fall on Joffrey Peak uh, right after we skied it, and the the solo guy that all of a sudden I spotted by some miracle out of the corner of my eye falling down Joffrey Peak. That was by far the closest call and it definitely freaky because you can see what can happen if things go wrong. Um, and we were lucky enough to be there and help uh, initiate a rescue to get him out of there. Um, so that was probably the closest call. Otherwise, no, we've been, we've been pretty good. We've made a lot of really good decisions. We backed off when we felt like it was important to back off. How many times um, have you backed off so far? At least five. I think there's like... I would say there's like three times that I was on the route and have turned off of it, maybe four times. Yeah, actually four times. And then there's probably like three or four other times where we got to the base of the line. We started tromping around, trying to figure out if we were it was good to go, evaluating conditions for ourselves, and then just didn't even attempt it. So uh, yeah, turning around is as important as being successful. I'd love to echo that. So yeah, let's let's really help that sink into our users. It's turning around is so good. And and when you do get in the right mental space, it actually feels kind of badass. You know, you're yeah. like, no, I like I could keep going and, and do something silly and scary and, and maybe I'd pull it off. But the more badass thing to do here is to walk away and know I can come back. Well, it's actually way harder to do too. It's way yeah. more it's way more taxing on your mind to do that, to like you, it's rare that you ski, uh, you back off something and then the whole avalanche, you know, the whole face avalanches and you're like, yeah, see, good call. It never pretty much does that. So you all of a sudden start juggling your mind. Could I have done that? Was I chickening out? Uh, was that the right call? And so you really have to like be comfortable with those decisions and you have to be kind of courageous with those decisions. Like, no, this was the right call. And that was the way I felt. And this is important to continue to survive in the mountains in a dangerous place. So yeah, turning around um, that mental battle that you go through is is really important it's a great perspective and you mentioned the joffrey peak so joffrey peak i think is in british columbia uh canada western canada and tell us the story uh it doesn't have to be real long-winded but you rescued a person at joffrey who took a terrible fall and can you tell us a little bit about that story because i just watched your video of it and it is really interesting yeah, so we were, there's three lines that are doable on the north face of Joffrey and the classic says ski the north face of Joffrey. It's really steep, really gnarly. There's three lines, uh, Twisting, Central, and Joffrey Kular. Um, we went up with the intentions of trying to ski Central Kular, look like the prominent, most prominent cool line to do. Uh, given the snow conditions uh, that we had at the time, we went evaluated it multiple times and we just were like, it's to me, not doable. So we ended up going up one day skiing Joffrey Kular. As we got down to the bottom, 
literally kind of skiing out at the glacier and I just kind of glance back up and I look up back and I just see something moving. And I was like, what is that? And it's like moving fast down central Kular. And I thought I was like, is that a rock fall or is that a bird? And then all of a sudden I realized I was like, holy shit, that's a, that's a human. And that person, that's a tomahawk. And that guy's already fallen like a thousand vertical feet. And he's got another thousand vertical feet to go and watch him ping pong off rocks, fly off the end of a cliff and tomahawk for another, maybe 500 yards out the bottom of it. And then I was like, that was, that was a person. And Bjarni skis up to me and I was like, holy shit, dude, like someone just fell down central. Um, and previously to that, like three or four years prior, three people had fallen down central and all were killed. So like, oh it's, it's, it is dangerous and serious. And I mentioned that in our episode, I mentioned it like three or four days before. And all of a sudden it was like, this is literally happening in front of our eyes. And at that moment, we didn't, we didn't know what to do. We were like, a thousand vertical feet below him. Um, we couldn't evaluate it. So we actually took our drone tra- and we took that off. We flew close to him and we saw like, is this so guy dead? Or, is, is he dead or is he like, is he, could he survive? We couldn't quite tell. He was just sitting there, like sitting on, on his butt in the snow and slumped over. And we're like, this is he going to die in five minutes? And at that point we were able to quickly evaluate like, he's living he looks grievously injured we don't know if he has a broken back broken legs but we can tell there's blood we got to get help and so at that point we brought the drone back and we came up with a plan and the plan was we had an hour and a half of light left we knew that if we had to rescue him being bjarne and i only it could take 12 plus hours i've done wilderness first responder courses and know what self-rescue is like and how hard it is so we said like we need a helicopter and we need here fast we don't think he's going to survive the night um, if we just have to rescue him so i went for help because i i actually knew that like initiated sos response on like a you know like a garmin inreach or satellite communication device like a bivy stick was Uh going to be probably slow can take up to three hours and i just wanted like confirmation and i i needed the helicopter there so i raced to cell service i like sprinted out of the mountains to the point where i was in my car practically dry heaving i was so out of breath when i was like driving in my car um i got down i actually called the heli operation first because i was pretty tight with everyone there and was called and i was like vicky i need a heli now and then i called 911 then i called search and rescue uh bjarne went up to him to get him in layers to comfort him to try and get him because to to stop actually walking he it was trying to like, walk off the mountain and Bjarni was actually holding him it looked like at times yeah. I, thought, I thought that was so brave and awesome to do continue yeah he took off pretty much all his layers and put it on him because he was in shock and he was going and he was already hypothermic by that point and uh just held on to him and we initiated a rescue heli got in there at the, like the last minute uh Bjarne got picked up in a separate helicopter like a minute after the guy was picked up. And then he was raced all the way to Vancouver in the heli um, to the hospital down there. So that was happened. And it was by some miracle that I witnessed it. We were on the bottom and that we were able to get him out of there. Um, The search and rescue after it said like, yeah, he wouldn't have survived the night if you guys didn't, you know, he wouldn't have survived if we weren't there and he wouldn't have survived the night if we didn't, uh, if we had to initiate like self-rescue. Not many people can say they saved a life. And uh, I think that you guys very much can say that now and it's well-deserved. And uh, I'm so happy that you guys were there. And uh, are you in touch with that person anymore? Yeah, we stay in touch okay, here good. and there. We okay. text back and forth. And yeah, yeah, that's for sure. He's, and he's doing uh, all right. 
Yeah, he's doing okay. He had to have a few surgeries. Um, he was in the hospital for a month or so after, Whoa. but um, he was able to, he was actually Austrian. He was able to fly home and got some really kind messages from his family and whatnot. So yeah, that's no, great. Was, I just, I don't even feel like we were like heroic or did anything. I feel like we were just lucky and like the, the you know, search and rescue, those operations, those are the guys that are making it happen. We just happened to witness it and luckily made the right call. And uh, if he's Austrian, he's definitely gonna be okay. Those are the, like the toughest people on earth. You totally. About. <laughs> so, well, thanks for that story. This project is about more than just skiing scary peaks. You've also committed to creating entertaining videos around each and every peak you ski, each, each and every line you ski, which I think is hard to do uh, in any circumstance, but especially in the middle of nowhere, ski mountaineering. And ski mountaineering is kind of 99% not that entertaining. So uh, how, how are you making these videos and is it taxing? Um, well, I would actually say like what I found fascinating when I started getting into it was everything that goes into ski mountaineering is fascinating. The actual act of it can be in certain ways the same the kind of you're climbing up something and then you're skiing down something slowly. Um, but I was like, I actually pitched it when I was first kind of came up with it. I was like, it's going to be 80 to 90% not skiing. It's going to be everything that goes into it. It's going to be Smart. all the decision-making, all the scouting. Cause that's what I found fascinating was putting the puzzle piece together to figuring out how to climb and ski safely. And so to me, I was like, that's what I want to document is all the, all the things that I find interesting. And, um, and yeah, that's what we set off to do. And I think it's really uh, struck accord and yeah it is it is incredibly taxing to make these videos um we it's gotta be i mean we're yeah like i said we're at it's hard enough 30 videos in. it is uh Jeez. i've been the most busy i've ever been in my entire life and that's even saying like i started a small business with friends and yeah. <laughs> like it is uh i am pretty much yeah completely glued to my computer to thinking of ideas of figuring out the the mountains the plans the video ideas behind it the editing like it is crazy um in the middle of winter i'm no less working on three videos at the exact same time. So like concepting and figuring out the next one while shooting the one we're currently on while also editing the one that just about to come out. So wow. it's, yeah, it's pretty, no one sees that, but that's the work that goes into it. No, and there's too many questions there. So I'll try to brush through some, but so just quickly, who does the editing? I have about four editors I work with. They're all based with Chop Shop. Um, they okay. were kind of, they're a company that does provide editing services to like anybody. Um, and I've kind of worked with them to like help with their team of editors. And so I work with like, I'll have two or three editors working at the same time on separate episodes. And then I also, for these like movies, I'll hire other companies. I work with Team 13 a lot. Um, but then I'm also like, I'm pretty much directing every single one of them and watching every cut of them, writing out the script for them, really just game planning, writing out the shot list and whatnot. So it's, uh, that's quite a lot of work, but got a good team. And then obviously Bjarne, who is the key ingredient to making it happen. One of the few people in the world that can bring a camera to the places he, he does. And we'll jump into that here in a second. But uh, so you mentioned your business before, which is Arcade Belts, which I will ask you about here in a little bit. And then, uh, I, I mean, that's kind of the light bulb for me right now. I think that's 
the most intellectual part of this whole thing is, is coming up with these little scripts. We should tell our listeners that you make little videos around every peak you do, every line you do, and then you do videos about the gear, about the, the decision-making, um, you know, all kinds of interesting things that you just mentioned about how 80% of this is not skiing. And that's genius that you had the foresight to come up with that and to pitch it when you pitch it to your sponsors, make sure they understood that. And you also have kind of a good actor, man. Like, is that something that you've always done? Because that, that's the main reason that I enjoy watching that you do these funny little things that are kind of in the vein of you know nar the the movie nar and then uh, the book of nar and, and all that stuff from shane mcconkey and so tell me about the acting a little bit just just briefly like where does that come well, from i think most of it i've just been i don't know i'm pretty comfortable in front of the camera i've been in the front of the camera for 20 years and so yeah. it's just something that's kind of natural to me so most of everything i do is not acting it's just being me and talking and <laughs> hosting and taking people through the day. But then all the, like what I do like to do. And one of the things I don't like about ski mountaineering is it's very serious. And a lot of people right. take it very seriously, which is obviously good. It's a very serious thing and it's very dangerous and it can be very challenging, but I wanted to bring some humor and levity to it as well. And so uh, doing like skiing terminal cancer on a mono board and doing it on <laughs> the snow blades, doing it naked, doing the, <laughs> schemo fkt attempt on the beerhead traverse right. all those kind of things i definitely try to bring humor to it because i want to i don't want to make it boring i don't want the episodes to all be the same and the the secret ingredient is if the mountain is challenging and hard the story tells itself but when it's not the most challenging line i generally have to come up with a good idea of being like okay like here's we got to we got to film something like make an episode that's just purely entertaining because this line itself, not the most challenging, doesn't lend itself to a good story. I agree with all the things you said there. And I love the humor and I love the acting in it. It's, it's really fun for me. That's the piece that I enjoy the most. Do you know how many views your videos have gotten in total? You've done 30 something videos now. Yeah, we're over six, almost six and a half million right now. So that's, yeah, it's that's, doing really well. Yeah, really well. So I just did the math in my head today as well. There's over six million views here. And your famous run, The Crack, we'll talk about in a minute. It, I think it has 2.6 million, which was awesome. But that you have generated this machine that has generated six million views is incredible. Well, why do you think these videos are popular? I don't know. I think it's mainly because it shows the real side of it and it shows there's authenticity to it that shows kind of the true story of, of, of everything. There's no glitz. There's no glamour to it. There's no facade to it. It's just kind of the rugged kind of the, the piece of it. Um, I think people can connect with that. I think people are curious to see like, what are these pro skiers that are doing this? How are they doing it? I've always said like, most people think pro skiers are like superheroes and I will be guilty of the same. I looked at Shane and all my heroes and I thought they were superheroes. And then you meet them and you realize they're just normal guys. And then as I got into skiing and people are like, you're nuts. What you're doing is insane. I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I'm scared half the time. And I just wanted to share that to people that like, we're just real people people doing real things. And I share the same fears and challenges and doubts uh, that everyone does when we go out there. And I just wanted to like kind of make sure to, to translate that. I don't know why. I'm very open and honest. So I just wanted to make sure that open and honesty was out there. I think that's part of why they're popular. People want to know the how and the yeah. why, and they want to see the dirty background. You know, they want to see, you know, instead of the glamour and glitz, these are, these videos are, are more, you know, dirty and, and the real life that goes into all these things, the real decision-making and the real situations that you guys end up in. 
we got to jump to Bjarne. So he is the human making these videos. He's a very strong skier. He's a badass mountaineer. He's a terrific filmmaker. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about Bjarne and your relationship with him? Yeah, so Bjarne is the magic sauce to make it, this all happen because <laughs> I think there's only like there's only like five or six people in the world with the camera skills and the climbing uh, skills, the technical skills, the mindset, and the physical fitness to essentially go to every place that I'm going. And I would say arguably, he came, no, not even arguably, he came into this project with far more experience in this world of ski mountaineering than I did. Um, so knowing that as I brought him into the project and asked him to be the main cinematographer, I knew I had like a trusted partner for this whole thing and early on in the project there was times he was like i'm like getting through some weird ice section i'm like wait how do you do this and he's like yeah just make sure you go like place your axe like right there and you're like oh cool thanks so it was really <laughs> nice to have that to have someone that's more experienced than i as your as your main partner but then at the same time we share the same mentality when we go into the mountains he loves just being out there he would rather not have a camera out there but he knows this is like part of what he does to make a living and it's just like i know i would rather be just climbing the skiing these lines without having to make episodes necessarily but it's part of what makes us being able to do this for a living we do enjoy that process we enjoy the making of the films and making it all happen but you know it is a lot of extra work we also share the same risk tolerances like he he is naturally he's gone through some stuff he's lost uh, his best friend in the mountain he's lost a lot of friends in the mountains and uh just like i have and i think we we share a same risk tolerance of profiles the the concern for safety the need to turn around when we need to turn around so um he's just absolutely like a, the perfect partner to have in the mountains and it's been awesome because he's pretty much the partner for every single one of these lines well i think i can speak for everyone saying we appreciate this because we are all learning th so much about ski mountaineering and these places that you go through you guys so uh, that's a huge reason why these are popular too and the reason i enjoy these videos you guys are recording this for posterity too you're recording this exact moment in time. And, and I'm assuming you guys will have a, a movie at the end of all this and hopefully a book and more because this is something that needs to be, like I said, recorded for posterity. This is going to be something that people will talk about. It's going to be something that people refer to. And it's going to be something that helps a lot of people moving forward. So thank you. And then I got to dig in here. Does Bjarne carry more weight than you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's got camera equipment and like drones and batteries and stuff like that. So he's definitely, but he is a freaking uh, horse, man. That guy, uh, he, he gets tired, but it's pretty rare to see him get tired. He is a, uh, he is a machine in the mountains. He is as physically fit as it gets. So uh, he's really comfortable with it. I think he's been used to it. He's done it for 20 years carrying cameras. So uh, when we do go out skiing without it, he's like, Oh my God, it's, you don't have anything in your pack. And it's like, easy. <laughs> no, I know I carry bricks to make it the same. Uh, the only thing we'll do is like if we if we're carrying ropes and protection pieces and stuff like that, I'll make sure to share that load. I don't I don't throw it on him. Well, I think you're very fortunate to have him, and obviously him to have you. This is a, a beautiful team that uh, it, it's fun to watch you guys get better and better together. So during the 50 project, you talk about last descents. Nobody talks about last descents. What do you mean by last descents? Well, the fact that climate change is affecting our mountains way quicker than we actually could have, I think, forecasted. We all think of climate change as something off in the future, but it is happening now. And lines like Joffrey Peak, which collapsed, uh, the whole north face pretty much peeled off and 
rendered two of the three skiable lines not completely unskiable. And you can tie it to climate change because there is an instance of uh, science showing that high alpine rock slides are happening at an increased rate with rap- with more warming and more temperature fluctuation that is happening around the globe. So yeah, that right there is like, cool. Well, two of those three lines of Joffrey are completely unskiable. They're, they're was at one point a last ascent. Um, I think as of right now, we do have the last ascent on it. I still think Joffrey Kular, while we skied, is skiable, but I don't know if anyone actually skied it last year. And then also lines like the Watson Traverse, like uh, it's a very glaciated traverse and necessitates glaciers to to get on the mountain and to get off the mountain. And those glaciers are dissolving at such a quick rate. I mean, Bjarne and Ape were so freaked out because the bridges were so narrow on the crevasses and the, the crevasses were so big compared to pictures we'd just seen like five years prior that we skied a 25 degree, 2000 foot run on rope the entire time. Like, and I'm just like in five to 10 years, this thing's done. You're not going to be able to ski this. It'll be completely just pure crevasse field. So, uh, yeah, that's one of the things I'm actually realizing the race to, to finish this is against climate change. It's so interesting to get to talk to people who've seen climate change happen in their lifetime. And uh, you obviously have. So, you know, Noah Howell. So there's a little bit of competition here, which is kind of uh, adds some fun to the equation. So Noah's a really strong ski mountaineer from Utah. Uh, he's been checking off lines from the 50 classic ski descents in North America for years. I'm not sure how many, but Noah is a, he's a formidable competitor. He has already done all 90 lines in Andrew McLean's steep skiing Bible of the Wasatch called the Shooting Gallery. And we just had uh, Andrew on the podcast here a couple of weeks ago talking about that. So Noah's maybe done somewhere around 30 of the classics as well. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, definitely. I think that's what he has updated on his blog. And yeah, um, but as you frame it as competition, it is definitely not a competition, at least in my eyes, um, because the you know the fact is I when I started dreaming about the 50 project, like I started dreaming about it in like 2016. And then I went up to Denali in 2017 and whatnot. And from what I thought, no one had tried to ski all 50 and no one was attempting to. And uh, I was funny because in my research and on my beta, I would, I would frequently find myself on Noah's blog being like, <laughs> Oh, here's like a, here's some beta and a blog piece about this 50 classic. But it would just say like on, he would literally hashtag 50 classic, but he never once on his blog ever said like, I'm trying to do all 50 classics. And I think he didn't do it because he went through the same thing that I went through pretty early on. It's a really hard thing to commit to publicly and mentally to be like, hey, like, I'm going to go try and do this because this is incredibly hard and incredibly dangerous and may not be even doable. So it wasn't when I committed to it, um, I was like mentally just like it was 2018. I'm like, all right, this is what I'm doing. I told my sponsors, I started pitching in the project. I uh, told MSP, I'm not filming with them anymore. I got this new idea. And at one point, I told Chris Davenport, one of the authors of the book, The 50 Classic Ski Descents. Um, and he was like, that's awesome. That's so cool. He calls me like a month later. He's like, whoa, do you know Noah Howell's trying to do it? And I was like, no, no idea. And he asked me, he's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, I'm going to still do it. Like it, it was never to me about like wanting to be the first. Like to me, those years of battling over in my mind and dreaming about it was like, because I knew it was this deeply personal challenge. Like I looked at this project and this book being like, as a thing, like 
could you do it? Could you, who came into this idea and this project with not much experience in ski mountaineering, commit yourself to this? Could you learn along the way to try and complete this? And so, yeah, of course I committed to it. And so to me, like, it's never been about trying to be the first. Um, I do say quite often, no one's ever done it just to try and like frame it to the outside audience that this is really difficult. It's not something like the 50 classic groomers of north america um but uh but <laughs> also yeah, him, awesome yeah super awesome that's my next project <laughs> um but yeah no so to me it's never been about uh, the competition and um i can't totally speak for noah i know he's an amazing guy i really like him i love the humor that he brings he's an incredibly strong skier and uh yeah it's uh kind of my take on it I found, thank you for that. I found myself on his blog too, doing getting beta for the grunge couar totally. of Timpanogos. Uh, and uh, he's, yeah, again, I really like the way he writes. Uh, he does clearly, a great job on his yeah, blog. Yeah, <laughs> it was so funny. Impressive. All of a sudden I put it two and two together at one point when Davenport told me, I was like, oh, that's why I has so much beta in his blog. Gotcha. Yeah. He and, is trying to do it kind of quasi secretly. Totally, totally. And, and speaking of Davenport, so we just had Chris Davenport on the show as well a couple of weeks ago. Chris Davenport wrote the 50 Classic Ski Descends of North America, uh, which is what your project is based on. And uh, Chris is also the first person to ski all 54 of Colorado's 14,000 foot peaks, which is nuts. Um, the guy's so strong. He's a great person. I've done a little guiding with him in Antarctica and skied some really icy days at Squaw with him, which was fun. He did this penguin slide for like 200 feet for the camera one day, just on his chest. It was great. And uh, so, so Chris, you know, he's done this big project on the, on the 14ers in Colorado. He wrote the book, you know, what's your relationship with Chris and how does he inspired you? Cause it seems like you're really taking a, a chapter from his book and running with it. Yeah, well, I mean, Chris and I were actually on Solomon right when I was, I was still a ski racer when I was on Solomon and I met him when I was about 16 years old um, at a Solomon sales meeting in Squaw Valley. And uh, I always looked up to Chris, one, because he was obviously an amazing free skier and he was a legend of the sport. But what, you know, what I really looked to him pretty early on was like, you know, this guy's successful and managing a career in this sport. And that was what I kind of looked at. I was like, you know, like if you're going to try and make this your job, you try, try and do it well and try and, you know, make a living at it if you can. And Chris has carried himself in such a way that, you know, he's been able to be a professional skier for 30 years now. And yeah. so I really looked up to Chris in that sort of way of like how he carries himself, how he uh, has managed to make a career out of it. And I look to him quite often for that sort of almost business advice in a certain way of like how to make it. Um, but then also like, you know, what he's done in his career of his transition that kind of shares with mine of being from a professional free skier to more of a ski mountaineer, you know, definitely inspired by that and his project. Um, I remember thinking to myself at one point, I was like, oh, the 50 project. It's like, it's like Jeremy Jones is deeper, further, higher. And it's like Chris Davenport's uh, 54 project of the 14ers in a year. So I was like, nah, pretty similar. Yeah. And very cool. And I think a terrific strategy because so many professional free skiers and snowboarders have these awesome careers. And then, you know, I think they, they, they have challenges after that you know, figure out who they are and what they're going to do. But if you can keep this thing rolling, like Chris has, you know, becoming a guide and, and you know, all these things Chris has done and, and what you're doing, it's uh, it's inspiring and it's a great path to go and you stay very relevant in the industry and it's fantastic. Um, I mean, and so congratulations. 
Yeah. I mean, does it get much better to pay people pay you to go skiing? Like, yeah, you have to work at it. You have to make it yourself valuable to, to the industry to, to do that. But I'm like, if I can like literally make a living for my whole life off skiing, that is awesome. And I would not trade that for anything. Like, well, I I don't want to go work in a bank and make like 300,000 a year and be like living in downtown San Francisco and having to work at a bank. Like I'd rather uh, just make it live in Tahoe comfortably and be a skier my whole life. And people like Davenport or people that kind of paved that way for it. I think Davenport has done that so well and with so much class and you're doing the same thing right now with, with class and, and bringing intelligence to it. Let's jump into the crack, uh, which has to be talked about. If our listeners don't know, uh, in 2014, you skied a very impressive line in Alaska called the crack. It was regarded as the most insane line ever written. And the video went viral. The video got over 300,000 views in the first 12 hours online. And it has now over 2.6 million views. And this thing kind of catapulted you to a level of stardom that not a lot of skiers and snowboarders experienced because it took you past the ski industry into just the general public. And you ended up on TV shows like Good Morning America. You ended up on ESPN. You ended up on CNN. Uh, What is the crack and how did you find this thing? Um, well, I'll first say it actually has way more views than that. There's a two channels oh, on okay, YouTube so, that host it. Yeah, tell um, me. The, so the MSP channel, I think, is like 10 or 11 million views. Oh and then the Red gosh. Bull channel has 2.6 million. Okay. So, so I apologize. Um, I want to redact that. No, I tried to find it. It's like, God, 2.6. I remember this being bigger, but yeah, I, guess I'm not, I just found the Red Bull line of the year, maybe. I messed it up. Yeah. So this thing's totally. got like 15 million views. Yeah, it has like 15 million and did go quite viral. Yeah, putting on, it was in SportsCenter's top 10 plays. I mean, that was much of the biggest accomplishment. But to to your question, so the crack, um, the crack is pretty much one of the most insane natural features I've ever seen in the mountains. It's literally a crack in this peak, uh, splits right down the middle of it, like a cleaver into this mountain, and then goes into a full tunnel. And it's like a, it starts off at, you know, it's like kind of an airdrop into it to about 50 degrees for the first, I don't know, five, six turns, and then probably mellows out to around 40 to 45 for about 2000 vertical feet after that. And yeah, I just, it's, it was something I was looking for, for a very long time. Um, I tell the story and I told the story in uh, the slideshow presentation of like actually skiing terminal cancer with Jeremy Jones, him getting to the top of it with me. And he says, I want to ride this thing fast. And I'd skied it before and we just made like hop turns down it. And all of a sudden he kind of like points in and it's just doing hyper quick slalom turns, checking his mm. speed, but ripping down it. And I kind of was like, yeah, I'm going to do the same thing. And I just like started flashing it and just kind of kept my tips in the fall line, but doing like a million little quick slalom turns, maybe going like 30, 40 miles an hour, but just like walls flying by, felt like it was in Star Wars. And it was literally when I was like, I want to find the like the man version of that in Alaska. I want to find the super badass version of that. Like I was a skier that was always comfortable with speed. I was a downhill ski racer for a long time. I liked going fast. And then be growing up in squaw, we have a lot of cool straight lines. So I was comfortable in shoots. And I, so I'd set out, um, even before that trip happened, we knew the snow conditions weren't that great up in the Tojula mountains of Alaska. And I told 
Richie Perman, who was one of the uh, other guys on the trip and Marcus Eder before the trip, I'm like, I'm going to look for like a straight line couloir on this. Um, I knew of one in the Todrilos, but it was kind of like my goal on that trip. I was like, that is my one goal. And uh, ended up just randomly stumbling upon it. Honestly, I remember flying by the zone, a zone that I've been in multiple times and never saw this thing. I was looking out the helicopter and it was like a flash of a second when all of a sudden it was like, whoa, there's like a vein of snow down the middle of that mountain. And it was hidden. It was so deep in in these walls. And then I got dropped off a top. Um, I kind of hiked my way down to the actual entrance and looked down. I was like, this is it. This is is the crack and it is doable. And was it it challenging for you or were you pretty comfortable in the crack? I was really comfortable. Um, You looked comfortable. Yeah, like I was strangely comfortable. I remember... Honestly, so I was up at the top with Scott Gaffney, who's legendary filmers, filmed every amazing pro skier of all time, and a good buddy lives in Squaw with me. And I'm up there, and he's right on the ridge line with me, shooting down into it as I'm dropping in. He's looking at me, and he's he, he usually every time we go film, he's just doing our Squaw humor stuff, messing with me, joking <laughs> around, saying I suck, and all that stuff. Just talking shit with each other and uh, it's the first time in my entire career of skiing with him and i could tell he's nervous and he's like Whoa. you got this dude you, you yeah you you got this you, you got a bro and i was like it's like looking at him I'm like dude why are you nervous like Freaking yeah out. of course i got this i was like in the most zen like calm state i felt like i skied it like a thousand times in my mind i knew i was like prepared for it everything was just like it felt when I skied it, it felt like slow motion. It honestly didn't dawn on me how gnarly it was and how fast I was going till I exited the bottom. And then I was like, oh my God, that was the gnarliest thing I've ever done. But like dropping into it, I was like, I don't know. I was in a zoned out, completely zen-like state. But you recognized the gravity of it afterwards. Yeah, I did. I was like, because I remember being three quarters of the way down and going like, oh my God, I'm hauling ass. And this thing is super long and super steep. And uh, yeah, yeah, getting tighter and like coming out the bottom. I almost fell at the bottom. You can see I hit Avi debris and like got bucked and I was going so fast and held it together. And oh my God, it was like the greatest sensation ever. Well, congrats, man. It, it's well-deserved the, the catapult that shot you into ski and, and more stardom. I love that you were on SportsCenter's top 10. I yeah. love SportsCenter. To me, SportsCenter is the best show on television, but we'll yeah. move on. Yeah, what do you think about it captured the world's imagination and became popular across genres? Because I think it was understandable. I think it was relatable. You could see right away like oh it's narrow it's steep there's rocks it's a tunnel you can kind of see what the skier is going to do so if you're not a skier you can see that like oh you're going down this super narrowly shoot uh really fast with rock walls flying by and you come out of the bottom at like 70 miles an hour because i always say like honestly the most scared i've ever been on a ski line and i still to this day think is the gnarliest ski line was like four years prior to that in 2010 a line i skied up in in Girdwood, Alaska, um, this line off peak 6,500, which was like 1,500 vertical foot spine line that was incredibly Ooh. steep to like an 80 foot exit air that I like landed and like came out the bottom. It was like, I mean, I was so scared up top. I honestly turned around and looked to the sky because I was so terrified of dropping in while they were counting me in so that I knew I could just push off blindly. And once I was moving, then I was just moving and I there was no stopping at that point. But that line, like 
I've had friends in Alaska, heli skiers tell me like that was the greatest line that's ever been skied in Alaska at that time. Didn't even like win line of the year or anything like that. It was like kind of got some hoots and hollers, but it wasn't as relatable. You have to understand Alaska to understand the steeps, to understand the commitment of that kind of line of being on a spine with an 80 foot exit air. That there's only one way out when you have slough pouring on all sides. It's just, it's not that relatable. The crack was like immediately understandable. You look at it and you're like, that's gnarly. And no matter if you're a skier or not, you could figure it out. I think you're right. Flying by those rock walls and then pinching on you, it has a little bit of that Star Wars feeling, you know, when Luke is flying through those alleyways and the Death Star to, you know, to hit the target. And I think people really can really relate to that. It has a visceral cross-cultural power that, uh, yeah. that I think you really tapped into with that. And I'm sure you didn't even anticipate it doing all this. So, so pretty cool. Uh, just really quick, Travis Rice claimed that he had skied at first. There was a little rivalry there. Was that weird or was it totally normal? Uh, well, no, he actually did ride it first. <laughs> Let's say there was NDAs signed among no the way. lodge staff and whatnot from them. Wow, which so is a non-disclosure we, agreement for those who don't. Yeah. So no one told us. And we had separate guides. We had separate pilots. They were very yeah, secretive yeah. in their project and what they were right. doing. So uh, okay. we didn't know we actually skied it. So right. kind so of a weird, funny air. To be truthful, you're like, I don't know, man. Like if I'd known he read it, and then I found it and it was like the line I was looking for my entire life. Would it have stopped me? It's hard saying, like, it's really hard saying. Cause you're like, what, what's the point? Like we're doing this for ourselves. I, I was never trying to be like, I'm the first person to ski the crack. It was just like the line went viral cause it was impressive. But yes, the media did try to build it up as a rivalry, specifically the snowboarder media. I remember this headline, like Cody Townsend congratulates Travis Rice on skiing the crack first. And it's yes. like, cause I commented or something like that. I was like, Jesus Christ. But <laughs> what I will say is Travis is one of the coolest, uh, most amazing mountain riders there is. He's an amazing human. He called me after that. And he was like, he literally wanted to put the rivalry that the media was trying to create to bed. And right. so we did an interview with each other describing our experiences with the line. He published it on his own blog and on Red Bull's blog. And that was that. Yeah, there was no rivalry because truly that guy is a bit better than I think me. <laughs> Not he me, is. but just about everybody. He is He's one of the most good. insane writers of all time. And I have nothing but the most respect for him. So when he did like call me and was very just like, that's awesome. I was, it was honestly a really cool moment um, for me because I'd like known Travis, but to have a snowboarder of that caliber, um, you know, like congratulating me and one point saying he's like you wrote it better than I did I was like that that meant a lot to me and I I really I have nothing but the most respect for that guy well that's great I love hearing that strong beautiful ending so thanks for sharing that with our listeners because I think that that's something that a lot of people haven't heard about so after the crack what were your sponsors saying were, were they saying what's next I think it was everyone else like people are asking, what's next? How are you going to do? How are you going to top that? The sponsors to me, like I have such a close relationship that they were like friends and they were just like, this is amazing. Congratulations. Like they were just very stoked for me and just nothing but supportive. But I just kept hearing from other industry people, 
people online, like, what's next? How are you going to top this? And then even myself, like, you know, <laughs> oh my God, this is the biggest success you ever had. Um, you'll never be able to replicate this. So what are you going to do next? And like, truth be told, I was already looking for what was next. I was starting to get a little burnout on the, the filmmaking scene. But honestly, the line, I skied right before the crack. It was like a a uh, short spine to about a 60 foot air. And I remember thinking up top, just like not even stoked about it, not pumped up, not scared, just thinking it was like, well, this will be a good shot. And thinking <laughs> it was like, and this is going to hurt too, because it's a big air and it's kind of flat where I'm landing. So I was like, whatever, I'll do it. And I did the air and I landed it and skied away from it. And I was just like, okay, next shot. And I realized at that point I was really mailing it in. And I knew like, what's the point of trying to be a professional skier if you're just doing it for the cameras and not doing it for your own enjoyment. I, I knew at some point I was like, I'm just going to fade into oblivion while I'm not kind of like passionate about continuing to progress. And after I skied the crack, I was like kind of the only line I'd gotten up for that year. And so it was like, well, man, if only the most dangerous lines in the world are actually getting you excited at this point, um, maybe you should be looking elsewhere. And so I really, I hit the pause button because I was like, I don't, I kind of, I don't feel inspired by the skiing type of skiing right now. And I kind of want to see what else is out there. And I was inspired by people like Dave Treadway, who is doing these huge snowmobile access missions to then climbing big peaks. Um, I was inspired by some of the the other kind of free riders I saw getting into ski mountaineering and it was these expedition style skiing. And so started to kind of dive into that to see if that was what I would fall in love with. And sure enough, I did. Profound to hear that, you know, the camera, the industry got between you and your passion, you know, and that's, and that's super challenging. So what comes after the 50? I have no idea. <laughs> and I don't want to know yet because like, just like skiing, like the crack. And that was a big like transition point for my career. Like I didn't know what was next after that. It actually took me a few years to figure out what I was like kind of motivated by. And it took me going on those expeditions, like to Svalbard, going back to the Todrilo has been in a base camping kind of human powered approach to it, to truly fall in love with this aspect of skiing. So, you know, if I'm at some point, if I call it quits on the 50 or actually finish it, I don't know what I'll be inspired by. I don't know if it's going to be continuing down this path of ski mountaineering or being really bored of skiing hardback and just wanting to ski pal up in like the glades of BC. Um, or maybe I'll have like some late park reas uh, resurgent. I don't know. So I really don't know. <laughs> and I don't want to know because uh, pretty much my whole focus is going into this. Thanks so much for going through the 50 with us. Thanks so much for going through the crack with us. I think there's so much interest around both of those things and, and having that insight and in your perspective has been phenomenal. So tell me a little bit about Shane McConkie, uh, just real quick. What was it like? It's not, he kind of mentored you. Is that right? Uh, Shane McConkie, the huge you know, inventor and, and pro skier and, and just amazing person. Yeah, I mean, I see I looked up to him as a hero from the youngest of ages. He was one of the first people I started watching in ski movies, um, other than Scott Schmidt, and was just like, this guy this is this is life he is the happiest funniest looks like he's having more fun than any other person on the planet this is the guy that i want to be mainly because he looks like he's having so much fun and um i was lucky enough at one point to start to get to know him and get to ski with him and then my first year of filming with matchstick productions i got to film with him that entire season and just really get to know him and um i would just say he mentored me not in any like 
true like oh this is what you do this is what you do more that i just like was a sponge every time i was around him um and i was a sponge when i observed him and i just like i took it from the earliest of ages of being a skier and as i was trying to make my career and it being like look skiing's fun the reason why we do it is fun. And Shane, he embodies that. He only shows that it is fun. You don't complain that, oh, it's a, you know, it's a job, it's tough. And you're like, yeah, there are some toughness to it. There is a job, but you're like 99% of people would kill to have your job. And Shane was always like making sure to just to inspire people in a positive, fun way. And I was always like, that's how I want to carry myself through it because that's the way I see skiing. I truly uh, see it from the same lens. I've like, it's only about having fun. We're not out here changing the world. We're not doing anything great. Um, we're just skiing and sliding on snow and jumping off cliffs. So why do you make that too serious? So um, getting to know Shane that year and getting to start to ski with him was definitely like some of the most cherished moments of my life. Absolutely. And you both skied at Squaw Valley. You could live anywhere. You could ski anywhere. Why do you ski and ride at Squaw? Well, probably because it's been home for me. I mean, even though Santa Cruz was home growing up, I grew up on the Squaw Valley ski team and um, it's just, it's a home. And then it's the community that is here, all your friends, that that feeling of a, of a true community. And then truly like, it's a really, really, really fun mountain. Uh, it is sick. such a playground. <laughs> it is like every time I get there and I'm like, KT is the best chairlift in the world. There's nothing as like lappable as KT with that amount of terrain right off of it. It is is truly a playground. So yeah, I could live in bigger mountains. I could live where there's deeper snow, but there's just something so easy and fun about living in California and skiing here that I just, yeah, I can't leave yet. Plus, I mean, California's great. We got three hours to the surf, you know, yes. we've got the desert right out the other way. We got this, the high Sierra, which no one goes and skis in just to the south of here. So uh, it's a pretty great place to live. I agree. Squaw is my home mountain as well. So I share that with yeah. you. And I love seeing you out there and, and seeing Shane out there back in the day. Uh, real quick, your mom named you after Cody Peak in Wyoming, which is the big peak yeah. in Jackson Hole. Is that true? Yeah, definitely. That's she was so cool. seven months pregnant with me when they were skiing Jackson. And then they looked out, they said they went to the rope line. Back then you couldn't ski out of bounds. And they were like, Cody, that's a good name. And then, <laughs> like named me on the spot. So I was named after Cody Peak. Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful peak, man. Um, and then so Arcade Belts, uh, why did you start this company? It's, it's these really great belts and they're mostly elastic. Uh, why did you start this company? Well, mainly so it started when uh, my roommate at the time, Tristan Queen, we had lived together in squad or a condo and he was a bartender and coaching some of the team, like the big mountain team and some of the groms. And um, we would just sit at home at night. And I remember we'd always talk about like wanting to start a business and whatnot or do something and just, just friends and chatting. And at one point he brought a Grundon's belt to me and he's like, Matt Jackson gave me this, this, this is the best thing ever. Like, I wore a Grundon's belt today skiing continue <laughs> yeah totally no they're amazing belts and so uh he's like we got to make these but like you know for like skiers and so uh, i remember at that moment it was like the first like aha moment because you're like yeah wait no one has a ski specific belt even though we have thousand dollar kits that are specifically <laughs> built for the exact act of skiing so we actually approached matt jackson to start with we we're like hey like we would love to like team up be a part of this where we want to start a company and make these belts but for like skiers because you guys are in the fishing market and we're in the ski market um and he's like nope don't want to do it we talked to huh. his dad as well um we tried to convince him as well and then we're like we could could you have us you guys manufacture we'll pay you license it and they said no so we're like 
All right. And we went Here off we on go. our own and, and uh, started Arcade Belts because mainly we felt like it was a great product. It worked well for skiing and for our lifestyles. And uh, I think we just wanted the business experience. We were like, oh, let's start a small company. All of us kind of dream of that at, at one point. And yeah, here we are 10 years later. You were a stunt double for Vin Diesel once. So just give us the really quick and dirty on that. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, I don't triple X tried, yeah, Triple X, the return of Xander Cage. Uh, I always dreamed. I was like, <laughs> one day I'd love to stunt, do some stunt work for Hollywood. And I actually got a call um, from the Sweetgrass production guys that they're like, hey, we're working on a Hollywood movie. We need a stunt double for this ski scene for Vin Diesel. And I was like, yep. I didn't even know anything about it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Um, the scene itself was actually skiing in the Dominican Republic, which <laughs> doesn't have any snow and is a tropical <laughs> island. Um, and it was inspired by sweetgrasses in Valhalla. They had the ender scene where it looks like they're skiing through um, kind of the uh, the forests of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, like Mount no Baker. Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't look like there's any snow. They're just like airing, Super hauling cool. ass. Yeah, they shot it so well where they pretty much hid all the little bit of snow they brought in. So somehow the production team for this movie, the Hollywood movie, saw that and they're like, we want that for this cheesy action flick of a, a stunt <laughs> guy being triple X uh, doing that. And so we were forced to go ski in the Dominican Republic. Um, wow. And it was an interesting experience. I would say I learned a lot about Hollywood productions. I would say I value and love our small little productions a lot more after it. Of just having a few friends. But it was it was challenging. It was pretty gnarly at times. I got I got my ass kicked a few times just by like, I mean think about skiing on ancient coral reef in the in the jungle Whoa. and going like 40 miles an hour straight lining it down like a pretty steep like gravelly slope and just Whoa. eating it trying to jump cliffs too with absolutely zero snow Whoa. it was really challenging i was stoked to do it i went to the premiere in hollywood which was really no cool shit. Oh, that's Chinese so cool. theater so yeah it was <laughs> really cool wow that's a life experience so let's touch on surfing really quick uh, years ago, you and I chatted about surfing Scar Reef in Sambala, Indonesia. So I spoke of my sheer terror of the live coral, the huge waves, uh, there's like a kilometer paddle out there. You spoke of overhead barrels, having a blast and feeling fulfilled. Tell me a little bit about your, just quick, your surfing background, how much you surf now and what does your surfing future look like? Uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up surfing because I grew up in Santa Cruz. I think I started surfing at like 10 years old. I was always playing in the ocean and boogie boarding before that um, and surfed pretty much my whole life. But I was also like, there was points in my life I didn't surf that much. I would say uh, my junior and senior year of high school, I, I almost like kind of quit in a certain way. My mind was so into skiing that I was like, didn't even want to distract it. I'd rather watch a ski movie at home by myself than go surfing. Um, but then uh, pretty much in my early 20s, I started to get back into it, started to travel to surf for the first time, like went to Costa Rica, would go to Baja, go home and start surfing again and definitely got re-hooked on it. And I feel fortunate because yeah, I can I can read water, I can surf well enough to, to get barrels and can continually improve my uh, my surfing and it's actually now frustrating to a point because every surf trip i do i'm surfing better than the last one but i only surf for like two to four weeks a year and then i'm done and then i go on my other trip so i like i'm like oh, i gotta keep surfing but managed to go to the mentawai last year um, oh, and into again um, got some of the best barrels and <laughs> 
biggest barrels of my life there. But you said sheer terror. I'm scared shitless out there, and that's why oh, I kind of like it. Um, but my my future looks like. I mean, I just definitely want to keep surfing. My dream is to eventually buy a house somewhere on the California coast so I can surf more in the summer. And then I don't know, just keep traveling for it. I have a few goals in my surf life. One is to get a stand-up barrel front side where you can do the old Andy Iron, spread your arms out mm. wide in the barrel. Um, yes. that, that's a dream. And then I do have a small dream of trying to surf Mavericks one day. So I, I want to surf Mavericks, um, but I need to commit to it and put a lot of energy into it. I'm not just going to go paddle out to Mavericks. Like I, if I'm doing that, I'm going to be training for it. I'm going to be working my way up to it. Um, luckily, I have a lot of good like professional surfer buddies that surf maps and all that stuff who've agreed to bring me out there. But um, one day that would be, that's a dream of mine to surf maps. Well, I hope our listeners are paying attention because uh, that could be the next project for Cody yeah. Townsend. And I would hugely support you uh, in any way possible on that. So that would, totally. that would be sick. You goofy or regular? Uh, regular. So, okay. Yeah, so I just, just for the record, I hate that you're better than, than me at both skiing and surfing, uh, my two yeah. favorite sports. And so i uh, Maybe I can beat you one on in basketball, but probably not if you're the high school quarterback. All right. So, uh, uh, you're, but that's the whole thing, man. Like I always say, it's not about who's the best at it; it's who's having the most fun. That's oh, the best. Man. And that's where I think that you and I do really well. Yes, <laughs> um, so, really quick, you, your your body. Um, you're 37 years old. You've been hugging your meat for decades. How's your body holding up? surprisingly good but definitely the hits of hucking have taken their toll and it definitely hurts more now i would say i still like jumping off cliffs but definitely not sending backflips off 50 footers anymore just because yeah the, the hits start to add up nor like i did that for so long and got that sensation and got that challenge out of my system and it was so fun i still can feel that 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 floaty feeling of popping off a huge cliff laying out a backflip and landing on your feet it feels so good but you know as i started to do it more and more i started to get less and less like inspired to continue to do it so for me now, it's like, yeah, I'm definitely not hucking as much. And, uh, you know, in a certain way, it's been interesting because this year has been one of my first years I've really focused on endurance training. Um, for my whole life, I'd focus on like power training and like stomping big airs and being as strong as you could possibly be because that's what's good for skiing. It's what's good for downhill performance, keeping yourself from out being injured. And it was obviously good for football and ski racing as well. But this year, I'd like, I've done this incredible training program where I pretty much tried to transform my body into like an endurance machine. Um, and it's totally transformed everything. Like I can run for three to four hours and my knees don't hurt because I've like adapted the way oh. um, my body reacts to these kind of things, adapted my cartilage, my tendons and done a very intensive training program. And it's really cool. Um, it's pretty fun to kind of go through that and um, start to understand uh, what it's like to, I don't know, be an endurance athlete for the first time. When you were describing the backflips, you, your eyes were rolling back, like you were looking for yeah. your landing and you, you, you went to another dimension oh. there. That was cool. And then you came back to reality and then you started talking about this endurance stuff and you went back into that dimension again with your face. Yeah. You went into this, you know, futuristic, you, you were seeing things that weren't in front of you. So yeah. uh, that was really cool to see, to, to feel you and see your passion about the old backflips and the power and then the new, you know, being able to train your body to be an endurance athlete. Body taking hits over the year, do you think that may have led to you moving from being a strict free skier to a strict ski mountaineer? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it was just mainly like the challenge kind of started to get out of my system. And I just, like I was telling you that one line before I skipped the crack, like I just, I wasn't even scared anymore when I was doing these things that used to be challenging and scary to me. And I knew that that, that was a problem. Um, I knew that I was like starting to get lackadaisical with my approach to it. And that was actually, um, before I launched the 50, I'd filmed one more year with Matchstick Productions. And I, when I like really, really called it quits was I'd hit this air. It was like 40 foot air, um, seemed very straightforward. It was like a little air up top, three turns and hit this air, stomp, good landing. And I, to the point, I didn't even scout it. I just looked up and I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> off that right there went up to the top and i was like all right drop in and i went off in the wrong direction because i didn't scout it well enough and i pretty much landed on like an ice fall and an ice bulge and nearly like i kind of hurt my knee in the process i shattered my my boot exploded luckily i didn't get hurt worse and i was at that moment i was like "I'm, i'm done with this like i have to be done because you you don't have that element of fear anymore and you're gonna hurt yourself really badly because you're taking this too casually you know it's like what people always say like people always concerned about alex honnold and free soloing and like oh is he gonna fall off el cap like no because when you're working on those bigger projects you're so hyper focused that of course that guy's not gonna fall off free soloing el cap like that is his life's work but where the danger comes is when you're free soloing this route you've done 55 times and it's a mellow route 50 feet high you take it too casually and you don't see the signs of danger that day that oh it was a little actually wet last night and today's more humid and you feel so comfortable with it that you end up falling the same goes for skiing to me and that's kind of like when i started to almost doing impact to my body because I wasn't scared anymore. It was like, okay, now you have to truly transition to this, uh, this other aspect of the sport and commit to the 50 and ski mountaineering. The last question, this is the coronavirus ski season. Uh, it's going to be challenging, right? What, what do you think the silver lining is of this ski season? Um, well, one, a lot of people are going to get into backcountry skiing this year. That's for sure. We're already mm-hmm. seeing the explosion of that. And, you know, I, I'm not as scared of that. I'm not, I, I'm like, me people neither. are going to get be angry and like be, oh, there's so many more people. You're like, that's a great thing with backcountry skiing. You can go anywhere. Yep. Like, it's not there's like, always more. oh, yeah, there's always more. And I have my secret stashes. I know where to go when it's crowded. I know where to stay away from the local, like the hot spots and whatnot. So, and what I like about more backcountry skiers is you have more people that want to protect these important places. My in desire to be an environmentalist to uh, want to protect wild spaces all started because I became a skier and then started moving out into the backcountry. And you realize like, whoa, these places are amazing. They're absolutely special. We should not develop them. We should not uh, drill or mine on these places and climate change is affecting them. Um, it's through that process. I, I call it like skiing and backcountry skiing is a gateway drug to activism and the more people out there the more people that are going to want to protect these places and i think that's the ultimate best thing plus it's a really cool way to um, enjoy the sport and enjoy skiing so i see that as a silver lining Um, a lot of people don't and i know there's going to be a lot of angry people but you know what fucking i'm going to be stoked i'm going to help those people along because that's the way i think like a lot of my heroes would do it you don't shame people for wanting to go have fun you try and help them along and the other part is yeah there's going to be 
uh, I don't know, it'd be kind of cool to see what happens in terms of local exploration, finding your own backyard. I know this year I've spent more time running up mountains that I've never like been up, um, never seen in the summer. And I was like seeing like Squaw Valley in a whole new light. I've run up and down every aspect of Squaw Valley this summer. And it was really cool to see it in the summer, not just like driving and look at it, but like truly get a sense of that place. So that's also kind of cool is following these like little everyday adventures in your backyard. I agree with all that. That's all beautiful. And I, I like that people get into the backcountry too, because I've heard that Avalanche One classes are completely sold out. So I think that level of education is just going to get higher and higher. People are going to make better decisions, I hope. And it's just going to be, I think it'll be contagious, right? People will have the information. There'll be better partners available, all of that. So Cody, that's all I got for you, man. I really appreciate your time today. Do you have anything Thanks. else you'd like to share here at the end? No, I think we covered it all, man. That was, we, a, that was a good in-depth one. That was a deep one, dude. I really appreciate it, man. So uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. And I hope to see you in Tahoe skiing around soon. Yeah, hope to see you up on Squaw soon. Right on. Thanks, Cody. All right. Thank you. To learn more about Cody Townsend and his incredible 50 project, please visit skithe50.com. That's S-K-I-T-H-E-F-I-F-T-Y dot com. Thank you so much for listening to the Snowbrains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. This episode of the Snowbrains podcast was brought to you by Alta Ski Area. The editing of this episode was done by Robert Wilkinson. The music was created by Chad Crouch. I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark. Thank you for listening.